Welcome to Humanitarian Unwrapped. I'm Claire Louise Travis. In this episode, we are talking about the massive environmental impact of providing humanitarian aid around the world. We're talking reverse logistics, we're talking circular economy, and we're talking waste management. With me today are a practitioner and an academic working specifically at the intersection between waste and sustainability and humanitarian logistics. First of all, welcome to Catherine Ely. Thank you so much, Claire, for having me here today. I have a little bit of a, an interesting journey, I would say, from uh, working in the United States on communications campaigns to starting my humanitarian journey, actually in London, uh, where I got a master's uh, study in social policy and international development at the London School of Economics. Um, since then, I have been working in several different countries as a field-based humanitarian logistician in several senior management roles for the past uh, 12 years prior to joining the Global Logistics Cluster in 2021. And with that experience in the field and, and working as a loggy, I, uh, I mostly focused on emergency response as well as recovery and uh, preparedness activities in different contexts across Africa, Middle East, and Asia. My experience and passion for the environment directly feed into my current role, which focuses on providing information and tools to humanitarian logistics practitioners to support the adoption of more environmentally sustainable humanitarian logistics response before, during, and after emergencies. So I like to say that I pride myself on being a social policy specialist by training, a logistician by trade, and an environmentalist at heart. And uh, that's me in uh, in a nutshell. And joining us here is also Virava Tomala um, from the Homlog Research Institute. Yeah, hi. It's great to be here um, joining Catherine and Claire. Um, so I'm an academic. I work at the Homlog Institute. My academic background is mostly in supply chain management as well as development studies, which then quite naturally blend into humanitarian logistics research. I got my PhD here at Honken from Humlog, and my thesis was on urban food security in the global south, for which I did my field work in South Africa and Thailand. I'm actually also going to complete my delegate training with the Finnish Red Cross later this year. I've worked with Catherine before on the REC project, uh, which started in 2022, and since then have done quite a bit of work within the scope of humanitarian or environmental sustainability in humanitarian contexts. Starting January 2024, we have a new project, which is particularly around waste management in humanitarian contexts called WORM. And maybe for the listeners who don't know what the REC project is, Catherine, are you prepared to give us a brief summary of what that project included? Because it's very relevant to today's episode. The REC project is a global logistics cluster-led uh, project with a coalition of partners from the Danish Refugee Council, the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, uh, Save the Children International, and WFP as our partners. Um, and as Virva said, we've worked with uh, academic partners as well, such as the Humlog Institute, to, to work on um, some, some studies in, in relation to environmental sustainability and humanitarian logistics. But let me get back to the, the title of the, the project. It is the REC, the W-R-E-C. It stands for Waste Management and Measuring, Reverse Logistics, Environmentally Sustainable Procurement and Transport, and Circular Economy. So if you look at the project acronym, for better or worse, um, all those words, it's really trying to look at these different thematic areas within humanitarian supply chains and how we, uh, as the Global Logistics Cluster, can sort of coordinate with various actors and stakeholders across the humanitarian logistics space. So whether that's NGOs, UN agencies, academia, private sector, et cetera, 
um, to provide tools, information, and awareness raising activities in support of a more uh, environmentally sustainable humanitarian response. So we're working on a number of things at the moment. Um, some of those are information sheets and guidance notes that are really targeted toward field-based practitioners. Um, and then we're also working on a number of different training uh, trainings that we're, that, that we're trying to develop and roll out and also some academic studies. So one of the ones that we uh, that uh, Virvo alluded to earlier is looking at the drivers of uh, waste management and reverse logistics in the humanitarian sector. I want to start by just defining the problem. In what ways does humanitarian response have an environmental impact and what are the different waste management issues? By defining the problem, I think uh, first we need to consider the whole concept of humanitarian aid and it has the do no harm mandate which of course is the guiding principle for all of humanitarian aid and organizations that work within that. And now due to climate change and um, environmental issues that are plaguing pretty much every part of the planet, um, we've had to expand the do no harm mandate to also include the natural environment. Humanitarian operations are a very resource intensive exercise. So basically it's taking goods from point A to point B and a lot of these goods are single use. They're packaged in ways that they are very durable um, and they don't they cannot spoil. They're taken to very challenging locations where they need to be protected. So this comes with a lot of packaging material with a lot of, like I said, single use items. If you think about it, in effect, humanitarian supply chains don't actually differ that much from a commercial supply chain. It has the same basic principle of moving stuff from point A to point B, even though the end goal obviously is very different. So we don't work with profit maximization, we work with saving lives. Mm -hmm. But nature or the natural environment doesn't really care <laughs> where that plastic bottle or the emissions come from. They don't care that it came from a noble cause. It, it just cares that, you know, it ended up in the wrong place. So this is why environmental considerations need to really be increased. Um, in a commercial context, and in um, in research of commercial supply chains, sustainability and sustainable supply chains have been at the top of the research agenda for almost two decades, probably even more. And it it's quite sad to see how far behind the humanitarian supply chain management research as well as practice is in this regard. So Catherine probably has a bunch of practical examples. Yeah, yeah, no, thanks very much, Virva. And I think it's really important to talk about, especially in the humanitarian context, the different actors involved and the way that we even define what waste is, right? So I think one of the issues that we have in the humanitarian context is there's a lot of different sectors. So you have wash sector, for example, which is very clearly mandated for like uh, fecal sludge management, this kind of thing. But then you also have waste generated by beneficiaries, uh, by humanitarian logistics activities, whether we talk about um, waste or, or impacts on the environment, such as carbon emissions, let's leave that one aside for a moment, but the waste generated by those different activities that humanitarian organizations are, are, take, are, are doing. So really defining it, I think, is one of the main sort of issues that we have. And then looking at the various different actors across the humanitarian sector and who's doing what and who takes accountability in this sector, because it's really key to make sure that we put accountability where accountability lies and define those roles and responsibilities. Because up until now, 
and I, I know you mentioned uh, private sector being so much further ahead. Um, up until now, it's it's not really been a defined role. So what we've seen in terms of uh, partners and different actors and research is that it doesn't say humanitarian logisticians are responsible for waste, right? But in a lot of practical contexts, if there's waste at a warehouse site, well, it's the warehouse manager's problem. It becomes that person's problem, but it's individualized. It's not really defined in terms of roles and responsibilities in the humanitarian context. And I think we're, we're moving away from that and it's becoming more and more defined and logistics and supply chain as a practice is becoming more professionalized and recognized within the humanitarian space. But for a very long time, it wasn't. We're seeing, and there's a lot of different driving factors behind this, but our donors are picking up on this as well to say, hey, you know, logistics is a uh, uh, logistics and supply chains are a cross-cutting issue, and they have something, they have a role to play in reducing waste from from the outset at procurement, but also managing the waste when um, we have to set up different waste management sites and uh, separation collection sites and this kind of thing. So I think that's one of the big issues in defining where humanitarian response has a role. So given that this is such a hard topic to even define, what is the scale of the environmental impact from humanitarian response? Do we even have an idea of that or is this a black box question? Um, so quantification is always a challenge when it comes to impact because those are very ambiguous and the contexts are so different, it's very context dependent, but particularly if you think about the humanitarian context, quantification re requires a lot of resources that may not be available to humanitarian organizations, usually are not. There's only so much that research institutes, such as Homelog or the others that we've been working with, um, can do without col collaboration and sufficient data from some of the implementing organizations. There are steps that can be taken in collaboration with private sector and um, especially procurement is something that plays a huge role in um, kind of the quantification. You can look at life cycle analysis. There are very many different types of methodologies to be used when looking at the impact of a single product, for example. But these all are very challenging to do with the resources available. And you cannot do a life cycle an analysis for each specific product needed. Because as we all know, humanitarian operations and crises can be very hard to predict. We don't know the scales of them beforehand. This is challenging. It's not impossible. But it's kind of the lack of resources and just the lack of data that is making it more and more difficult to actually quantify it. So that's part of the problem, I think, why this has grown into such an issue is because we don't have enough information. No, and this is something I, I couldn't agree with you more, Verva. I mean, this is something looking at what is the impact, right? What is the 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 volume of waste that we're creating as humanitarians uh, on the environment? It's it's incredibly complex. Um, I think if we look at different different contexts, um, you will see different products in use. You will see different uh, maturity in terms of the markets and the suppliers and the manufacturing processes. Um, you know, you, you you talked about procurement a little bit uh, there, Virva, but I think, you know, we can say we design out waste, right? And we can do that in a number of environments. And I think if you look at policies from Europe and the United States and some of the more developed contexts, 
where you can procure goods that are more environmentally friendly, you still have to move them and you still have to ship them and they still have packaging. But we can try and design out waste. But at the end of the day, we are still going to accumulate and create waste at the end source, at the beneficiary level. And I think trying to look across humanitarian organizations, I mean, there's more than 500 partners that we work with as the uh, that the, the, the global logistics cluster works with at a global scale. And that's just sort of an estimate, to be honest, right? So if we look at this, the number of partners and the number of contexts that we're working in, it's incredibly complex to say, OK, what is the volume of plastic packaging, for example, if we even chose just one sort of commodity? that you create, that you have generated as a result of your activities. So I would say it's, I wouldn't call it a black box. We can make some informed estimations for sure. And I think the use of life cycle assessments is particularly, uh, is particularly good. It's very useful to have those, but they're, I mean, at least in my experience, there, there is not going to be a time and space where we will have all the life cycle assessments for all the, the core relief items, for all the context, done at the same time to have a true snapshot of what the waste volumes are. But we can make us we can make um, some assumptions based on some of those life cycle assessments that have been done already, some that are in progress and then say, hey, this is what we estimate it to be. And we we do want to reduce that. Right. So I think it really depends on how how much you're you're willing to estimate and how much you're willing to sort of give up some of the specificity on it and say it is X. We want to get to why, even if it's an assumption that we're we're here. Yeah, whatever it is, we want to get it lower. Mm. <laughs> That's the quantification we can have. You mentioned that there is a lack of resources to truly monitor and evaluate this issue. Maybe there's also a lack of data and that some of the methodologies are very product specific as opposed to the whole supply chain. Um, but what sort of steps are being done to address waste management in this sector? Catherine? Yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot of different organizations and partners that are are working on this issue. And I think uh, in the past five, six years, it's really snowballed in terms of the people that are and the organizations that are paying attention to environmental sustainability as it particularly relates to, relates to supply chains. But I think it's important to um, highlight some of those capacity building and prevention activities. So if we talk about one example that was just mentioned, green procurement, right? What does green procurement really mean? And how do we design out waste? There are several case studies from humanitarian partners who have looked at, uh, well, in some cases, been forced to change because of the operating environment and the, uh, the legal frameworks in place in humanitarian response countries. Single-use plastics are, are becoming more and more frowned upon and, and banned in different contexts. So humani humanitarian partners have said, OK, we have to reduce it uh, or eliminate them because it's not allowed in this country where we want to you know, respond. And there are some really good case studies of being able to sort of design out those uh, single-use plastic packaging particularly um, and reduce the amount of waste. But I think it's also important to look at the suppliers themselves. We're addressing environmental impact by building the capacity of our suppliers, raising awareness of uh, environmental issues with our suppliers. So, for example, one of the uh, one of the humanitarian partners that we're that I'm working with is essentially doing a um, capacity building campaign with their partners in a lot of their their country contexts, asking questions. Right? Uh, do you have a sustainability policy within your uh, manufacturing 
supply chain? Do you have a, an environmental sustainability um, policy for how you source the goods that you're providing to us? Simply asking the questions and letting our suppliers know that this is an issue that we're concerned with. This is an issue that humanitarians are starting to look into and raising their level of maturity and awareness of these topics is going to have a positive environmental impact because they're going to start to respond, right? Supply and demand. That's how the market operates. We tell them that it's something that's important for us. They will start to pay attention to it and make some changes in their operational modalities. Yeah, so that again comes back to how the humanitarian supply chain is just a supply chain. The same logic works there as does in the commercial sector where a lot of this work has already been done um, from an academic perspective or from a research sort of more helicopter kind of view. Like what you said about awareness, communication, collaboration, those are all so important when it comes to, to increasing awareness about environmental effects of humanitarian supply chains. The industry, as it were, is still quite siloed. So not just different organizations, but also within the organizations. Sectors don't really communicate, even though they would have quite a lot of overlap. So this is something that really should be emphasized, the breaking of the silos. As we know at the moment, climate change and climate-related disasters are the number one reason for displacement. So I think it would make a lot of sense for humanitarian organizations to not partake in that problem, to kind of be a part of the solution rather than the problem that they are kind of designed to respond to and not contributing to climate change and climate related disasters and environmental crises. So again, from an academic perspective, point, um, more research, more data, more collaboration, consolidation of data from different silos, so to say, um, multiple sources, organizations. We need a lot more of that to be able to tackle this issue. So you mentioned the displacement contacts and more and more people are being displaced every year, um, either to internally displacement camps, or IDPs between borders as uh, climate refugees. And I was wondering if there is a kind of humanitarian response or context that produces more waste. Is it camps, conflicts, climate disasters? And what is the daily impact for those affected populations, whether in a camp or in any other type of humanitarian crisis? I don't think it's really worth it or fair to sort of single out any particular context because you can't avoid waste. It's always going to be there. But waste and emissions are produced in every single context. Still, because we are at the beginning sort of, of considering this and making it a part of the strategy, of humanitarian organizations. I think there's a lot that can be done and should be done, strategic and donor level. The donors are in a very unique position to actually increase their requirements. They can uh, influence policies of humanitarian organizations. Of course, every context is always going to be different, and that's why solid strategic level and donor level, level policies are where things should start, I think. I don't know, Catherine. What are your yeah, thoughts I mean, on this? No, absolutely. I mean, I agree with you. Waste is going to be generated on a daily basis, no matter the context. Um, it's going to be generated by beneficiaries, but also the humanitarian organizations in their day-to-day -day program activities. So I think we can differentiate the types of waste generated by the emergency or disaster. So, for example, um, debris from an earthquake or a man-made conflict and waste generated by beneficiaries or in a camp setting. And then 
waste generated by the relief activities, so offices, warehouse, workshops, this kind of thing. But I think it's important to really discuss those two perspectives, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we can talk about really the waste management system. So how do we deal with end of life? What do we do in a responsible uh, waste management way to deal with waste that's generated regardless of the context? Yeah. And I think it's only really, it, it's quite tricky because you look at certain humanitarian contexts which are very far away from infrastructure, for example, um, that can responsibly deal with waste. So recycling plants, waste management facilities, landfills, this kind of thing. Um, so they're quite far away from it in some of these contexts, but you also can't tell where the next earthquake is gonna take place or the next, you know what I mean? So it's really hard to predict and, and to pick which context is particularly bad. But I think one of the most important things that we're trying that we're trying to do now is sort of raise the awareness about waste management infrastructure and facilities to donors and government counterparts to say like, hey, you do have populations in these remote locations and in these contexts, and we have a waste problem. We have a waste management issue. How are we going to get the waste from remote location A to uh, waste management facility B? And where even is waste management facility B? Looking at mapping out where the different uh, waste management facilities are, what their capacities are, and again, working with suppliers to say, hey, can you collect waste when you're coming back with a truck that's that's empty, perhaps after you've delivered humanitarian relief items, instead of just going back empty? looking at a lot of these different aspects and, and like I said there's a lot of uh, a lot of moving pieces uh, with waste particularly there's a lack of there's a lack of sort of that value chain to say waste is actually worth something right because if we look at recycling facilities um, and things of this of this sort that take back items that are no longer useful in context they can have value they do have value but it's difficult to match that perhaps with the social enterprises that are able to be the waste pickers in context A um, and then work with the suppliers to pick up that waste and bring it to a recycling facility who will pay for the waste and create it into something else. So it's really trying to connect all of the cycles of the supply chain and program operations. And again, sort of breaking down those silos between sector programs and humanitarian logistics and supply chain. Are there any other examples, either positive or negative, of impacts that affected populations have on their own waste management in their context? There are some examples of where, and these are very broad examples of where not managing waste or not correctly assessing the environmental hazards that may be in place, where it has actually kind of exacerbated the situation, such as plastic waste clogging drains, making flooding worse. Um, during more of a medical crisis, you have medical waste going into water supplies, things like that. So these are all situations that could have been avoided mm -hmm. through proper managing of the waste and of the environment as well. So maybe not have a field hospital right next to a water source, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. So it's not just about managing the waste, but it's also about assessing the environment. Um, there was an example that I read about where a camp had been built on a site of reclaimed land where they dug and then it caused a landslide, which then again made things a lot worse than they were before the camp was actually set up. Speaking of waste pickers, there have been great examples of um, programs that formalize them. 
I attended a, a workshop yesterday um, by our partner who is working on particularly this issue of they call it dignity for waste recyclers. That's their hashtag. So hashtag dignity for waste recyclers, not waste pickers. But what they're doing is they have a pilot project uh, in Kenya where they're working with hundreds of different displaced populations and it is in an urban setting to provide um, formalized a sort of formalized economy and formalized sort of recognition of these job profiles of waste pickers and waste collectors and then they're providing them with different tools and uh, PPE this kind of thing to really kind of formalize that that social aspect of this is important and you can gain a dignified economic benefit from being part of a recycling and environmental solution. So it's it's quite cool. I mean, there's a lot of other really, really positive social impacts to uh, trying to formalize this sort of informal economy is what it has been for so long and raise the profile of, of you know, waste collectors or waste recyclers. And if you look at in different contexts as well, I think that there's also really good examples of different sectors. Again, I'm, my theme here is a lot about breaking down these silos, right? But if you look at Cox's Bazaar as a, as a good example, you've got actors from all over different sectors. They had an intersector waste management working group where it gives you a really good example of how different expertise exists within each of the sectors to provide child protection, for example, to make sure that, you know, when uh, people are going to do the waste picking or waste collection, they're not leaving their children and, you know, abandoning them at home. You know, there's formalized sort of systems to support uh, so social inclusion, you know, the, the wash folks who are work looking at really the water and sanitation aspect of things. And then there's a loggies who also have a different perspective in terms of segregating the waste and making management of the waste and trucking out the waste and working with the suppliers. So when you look at the example of Cox's Bazaar, it was a, it was a really good example of intersector coordination and collaboration and utilizing the strengths of the different sectors to create a, a, a solution for everybody. There's actually a case study that we, we've just published um, on the REC website, which is really interesting, and it gives an example of this. But I think that's a really good example of what can happen when you break down those silos and you work across sectors. In Birva, you're absolutely right. I mean, you have things called like plastic tsunami, right, where there's just plastics coming in from the ocean or from the rivers, and it's just clogging the waterways to the point where it's become so polluted that getting clean drinking water, getting clean water at all is, uh, is, is it's virtually impossible. And you have situations where it's, it's choking ecosystems and it's killing fish, which is then killing livelihoods. And it's just a snowball effect of these kinds of issues if we don't manage the waste from the beginning. Right, so obviously, we've just covered some of the immediate negative impacts that might have on affected populations or individuals in vulnerable contexts. But what is the, the larger potential risk of just not having a strategic waste management approach in our sector? I think a part of it is also a, a reputational risk and a brand risk. Talking as a doctor of economics here <laughs> or an academic in a business school, because there have been in my research and talking to practitioners, there's been countless examples of how there have been like food sacks from a certain organizations that have just become trash on the beach. So that is never good for an organization's brand. And I don't think 
the humanitarian sector wants to be known as the polluting sector, you know, like everybody else is moving forward except the humanitarian sector, which I think is more of a kind of an image risk. But I don't think anybody wants that because you still want to be working with the private sector partners. Reputational risk is a very valid one um, because after all, we as humanitarians are invited into this context. And if the brand is bad, we may not be invited back. I couldn't agree more. Again, I think in terms of um, the reputational risks, I think it's also quite quite acute, I guess you could say, to make sure that we're actually communicating with the the communities of concern. Um, a lot of times we assume certain things are are waste and they're not. They actually have a value to the people uh, whom we're trying to to support. But I think one of the biggest risks, in addition to sort of reputational risk, is like you said earlier, Virva, you know, climate related uh, impacts and uh, are one of the main drivers of displacement in, in the world today. And the more we respond to those humanitarian emergencies and we don't take into consideration the environment we are just going to compound those negative effects to create more humanitarian crises and it just will continue the cycle if we don't really address it now and address it at source before we go in and try and work in the places that we're already operating and work to clean clean them up raise awareness across communities to make sure that again the the people that we're working to serve are aware Please don't take uh, plastic waste and just burn it in your compound. You know, I mean, it's not everybody has the same level of awareness and, and knowledge that the experts do in different organization HQs. And I think that's one of the things that uh, that I've seen in my experience in the past, you know, several years in humanitarian sector is that everywhere you go, people know a little bit different and they all have their uh, cultural norms and their their understanding of the environment in a different way. And so we have to adapt to that as humanitarians. And like you said, Claire, we're invited to these places. We have to learn from the places that we're going to and adapt more readily and more more actively. But if we if we continue to just operate on the business as usual, as we've been doing for the past, I don't even know how many decades, we will continue to have a negative environmental impact. And then there will be more humanitarian crises for us to respond to. I think there's generally a consensus that this is something we want to change. It's definitely an emerging field of academic research. There's a lot of new literature coming out every day. But how do we mainstream those? What are the challenges and the barriers to implementing some of these potential solutions at a greater scale? Well, again, it comes back to the perceived or real lack of resources. So this is something that Catherine and I laugh at all the time is that On the one hand, you have NGOs and organizations saying that they don't have enough resources or money to actually deal with this. And then you have on the other side, you have the donors saying that, well, nobody actually asks us for resources or money for these types of environmental programs. This is like, again, a kind of communication gap that needs to be somehow um, filled with proper communication, collaboration across the silos, across sectors, more research, more data. Yeah, this is. This is the only thing that we can do at the moment that will actually move this forward. Yeah, I I, I agree. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, we're also trying to change the mindset. I mean, I look at what we what the REC project at least is trying to do is a change. It's a change management project. 
it's really about changing the mentality of practitioners at the field level to say, hey, the environment is not somebody else's problem. It's my problem, too. And I have a role to play in it. And I'm going to take an active and proud. I'm going to be proud of my role in positively impacting the environment. One of the things that we're trying to raise awareness about is a circular economy uh, approach to supply chains. So instead of looking at it from a linear, like sort of take, give, done approach to looking at it from a circular sort of approach instead, it systematically will reduce the amount of waste that's designed and purchased. And then it becomes part of the value chain at the end of life management. So looking at it from a more circular perspective, I think will certainly help. But again, Virva, I can't disagree with you. You know, I think uh, communication, collaboration, information, uh, awareness raising activities, training, perhaps they're research. all research they're all incredibly uh, important to really making a, a positive impact on the environment to change the world we need to change the minds this episode of humanitarian unwrapped was hosted and produced by me claire louise travis with production support from anna jovleva and editing support from gustav hafström our intro and outro music was designed and produced by lloyd waldron You know how like when movies have at the end, like that extra scene? End credit scene. Yeah. We might have this as the end credit scene. Hey, Catherine, what is your deployment essential? I'm going to answer the question with a story. So I've spent the last uh, 13 or so years in various emergency deployments, some for like TDY, short term, couple of weeks here and there. And in thinking about this question, Every context is different, right? Some are urban, like you go to I, Beirut was a deployment that I had, like you don't need a mosquito net or a tent in Beirut versus, you know, going up country somewhere in South Sudan. For me, I would say uh, Akabanga. Have you ever heard of Akabanga? Akabanga, the hot sauce. Yeah, the Rwandan hot sauce. It is absolutely delicious. A lot of contexts that you go to have, uh, particularly in the deep field locations, have pretty standard uh, equipment and supplies to, to make food. And so while I love to, to sample the local cuisines, and I always eat the local food, always, I do like a little bit of spice in my life. So I have to uh, take along my Akabanga hot sauce, try the local cuisine, and if it's necessary, add just a dash, because it is quite spicy. Virba, what's your deployment essential? Well, I've done field work in different contexts and stuff. I think I would say that I would make sure that it probably these days it would be my phone, but so that I have enough music downloaded onto it so that I can listen to music when I need to kind of detach and recharge. Also, maybe another thing, I do like to bring my, my e-reader so that I have lots of books That's to read good. as well. So I'm more about the entertainment. I need to keep myself entertained. <laughs> And take like my mind eat, off. So. Yeah, yeah, but right. yeah, something to to kind of take my mind off and take me somewhere else for just a few minutes if necessary.